You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hey, John McWhorter, how you doing? Hi, Glenn. What's up? We are underway here at the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv, the black guys. John McWhorter of Columbia University, Glenn Lowry of Brown University. Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm in my post-COVID uh, existence here. I still have a little bit of rasp, raspy throat. I cough occasionally, uh, but I think the worst of it is behind me. My lovely lo- wife, Lawan, has completely recovered. She's out now doing Good. whatever whatever she's doing, but uh, she's back to her pretty much normal, cheerful, beautiful self. Um, I continue to labor with a little bit of uh, respiratory stuff, but uh, I think the worst is behind us. So that's my report on the health front. Uh, other than that, I mean, I don't know. Uh, the world continues on, critical race theory, et cetera. Uh, Here's a question I have for you, John. And by the way, I just want the audience to know John and I are going to talk for a while in general, and then we're going to re- no, turn our attention to the April uh, question submitted by um, subscribers at uh, patreon.com forward slash Glenn show, um, who every month get the chance to ask us some questions. So we're going to we're going to do a two in one here, uh, talk for a bit and then uh, answer questions for a bit and um, call it a call it a day. Um, but um you and I want to talk about critical race theory in the schools. It's everywhere. Uh, Paul Rossi, uh, Grace Church Academy, private school in New York City, Manhattan. It's become something of a figure for his uh, uh, public uh, report about inner uh, workings of the um, administration of the school where he used to be a teacher. I gather he's no longer teaching there, has been asked not to set foot on the premises without uh, prior consultation with the authorities uh, it engendered a fierce backlash to his public letter that Barry Weiss promoted uh, where he says, in effect, uh, it's way too woke over here. We need some fresh air. We need to give these kids a better kind of educational experience than we're giving them around these fundamental moral and political questions having to do with race. Um, and uh, he's just one of many. He, he reports uh, what we know, which is that uh, a lot of people out there are chafing at the bit with respect to the mania around anti-racism that has influenced their institutions, especially educational institutions, but they are afraid to speak out. Uh, he has spoken out. And uh, we thought we might, you know, I thought you thought we might talk about that a little bit now. So I'm opening up the conversation of critical race theory and American education, especially elite K through 12 education. We need more Paul Rossi, because frankly, the only way that we can keep the elect, as I call them, from permeating our institutions to a poisonous degree is by letting them know that calling you names on Twitter is not going to make you back down. Paul is a beginning because he's just one person, but from what he says, and I believe him, there are many other teachers that he was working alongside who feel the same way and a great deal, many more students and parents. And not everybody's up for being mauled. I completely understand that, but there needs to be more of him because it's the only way that these things are going to change. And what I find especially chilling about these sorts of things is that when somebody complains, when we get these things like the Dalton letter or this 
or frankly, what you and I are now seeing. It's at the point, Glenn, where now for me, it's like five or six a day. I feel bad because I can no longer even begin to answer everybody. There are people who probably think I'm kind of a cold fish because they write me these passionate accounts and I'm sitting there thinking I have 50, yeah, I have papers to grade and I get it. But you know, these people are, um, from what they say, you realize that the schools never defend themselves. The schools simply excommunicate and that's it. There's never any attempt at any kind of substantial explanation of, for example, saying in our history class, all we teach is this. We have not turned education upside down. We just say a few things like this, and basically it's the way it was two years ago or something like that. It's just that, nope, you shut up, out, or these accusations or are absurd. For example, the response from the president at Smith after, you know, Jody, Jody Shaw's clear accusations, never anything in any particular detail. They don't feel the need to defend themselves. That's what's scary. I don't think it's that they're hiding anything. I don't think they're yeah. consciously thinking, I can't defend this, so I'm not going to try. They don't even feel the need. That's how much power they've got at this point. They know that they don't need to go to the trouble of defending themselves and exposing themselves to more argument. I don't know if they realize that the arguments could be destructive to their very ideas, but they don't even need to bother. That's a serious thing in this society. So we need more Pauls. We need people like this to realize that they really can't keep doing what they're doing without either explanation or given that they would fail in that, without bending and going back to being part of a genuinely intellectual and artistic and moral society. So I say hooray for Paul, but we need more. There was a, um, there's a paper that I wrote about on Substack, uh, for some reason written in an academic article that ordinarily nobody would read in a journal of criminology, go figure, but the head of Riverdale Country Day School, Tom Taylor, Thomas Taylor, writes about how his school is going to be turned over to this kind of ideology. And if parents don't understand it, fuck them. Now, of course, he puts it more gently than that. But his point is, for parents who don't understand this, we simply cannot listen because what we're doing is of paramount importance. There's no argument to be had. That kind of resistance is something that we simply cannot countenance. And so what he really means is the parents can take their kids elsewhere. That shows you the power of this at this point, that someone like him could feel confident spelling that out for the public. I'm not sure what public he was writing for there, but I'm sure he would say it in public for the public to take in. So we have some people to put back in their place, their place being the place that all the rest of us are in, where we are in a society where we are in endless contestation about what the good is. They think they found it, and they're not even close. I mean, you talk about people who are close. They're not even close. Did so you that's what see, I think of this. Did you see the reaction to the parent at the Dalton school who had the public letter uh, saying, in effect, the school had lost its way? Uh, had very granular and specific objections to things that he thought were wrong with the pedagogy around race and racism that the school was following. You saw the, um, I gather, uh, authorities at the school or maybe a consortium of concerned parents on the other side of the debate. They blasted him, man. I mean, they, you know, he was, he was the, the original letter writer complaining. I'm sorry, I don't have his name in front of me was basically characterized as a fascist. I don't think that word was used, but the the tone of the rebuke was a, a moral condemnation for having raised the questions in the first place, which I think goes to your 
point that people at uh, the heights of these institutions don't feel the need to actually engage the arguments on a meritorious basis to say, no, your criticism is wrong. Here's what we're doing. Here's why it's okay. Because they think it's a badge of uh, fidelity to a moral position to have agreed with them. Your complaint and your objections are evidence of your lack of fidelity to that position. You're a bad person for having so objected. And therefore, it becomes ad hominem quite literally. It becomes about your character for having objected, as opposed to being about the merits of your objection. All decent people agree with us about this, is the supposition here. And the fact that this would be characteristic of educational institutions, where the goal presumably is to teach students how to think, not what to think, uh, is, is all the more concerning. I mean, it, it really is very concerning. Um, so uh, we need more Paul Rossi's. Why don't we have more Paul Rossi's? People are afraid. They, they are, they're living in uh, fear of uh, social sanction. That's the nature of the environment that we find ourselves in. How is it that such an environment can persist for so long without, without it collapsing if indeed the merits of the position that's being defended are so weak. What position is being defended? That white supremacy, white privilege, and so on, systemic racism, structural racism, and so on, permeate every aspect of American life in 2021 and account for um, where you see disparities. You don't see enough partners at a law firm. You don't see enough kids being inducted into the Bronx High School of Science. You see an imbalance in the kids who are going into uh, a high, uh, highly sought after college class or something like that. You see a wealth gap. You see a higher rate of incarceration. You see a disparity in uh, mortality and morbidity occasioned by a global pandemic. Every such instance of racial inequality has its root in structures of domination, of uh, failure to credit the value of the black body of a perception of black people as being less than fully human, of a reenactment of centuries old American structures elaborated initially in order to facilitate and justify an institution of chattel slavery. We've not really made any progress. If the senator from South Carolina who happens to be black and who gives a response to uh, the president's uh, joint session of Congress speech and utters the words, uh, America is not a racist society. And if the sitting vice president under pressure of question responds to a question by affirming that America is not a racist society, then those people themselves have, uh, have, uh, acted in immoral ways. They, they are contemptible for daring to assert that this is the thing against which the Paul Rossies of the world are pushing. I go on at length in order to make sure we know what we're talking about here. It does seem to be questionable. It, it, you, you can argue about it. I mean, you don't have to necessarily agree with Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter about all of these matters, but that they are self-evidently uh, all a reflection of the deep structure of systemic racism and the uh, in, inherent white privilege in the society. How did this way of looking at the world ever become so deeply ingrained that it, that, uh, it would be taken for granted and regarded as a badge of uh, moral legitimacy to to uh, affirm it. It's a way of thinking that 
I'm shocked to see acquiring this kind of influence. And I'm, I'm going to go in a delicate place here. About 15 years ago, I was talking to a, a black reporter. And we were having the typical disagreement as to whether or not racism is as decisive a factor as we're often told. And she wasn't a fierce kind of person, but she clearly did not like me. You know, she was being very polite about it, but I, she didn't like the kind of person who I am as a black person who doesn't agree with the sorts of views she had. Very pacific kind of person. And so we were exchanging ideas without it getting nasty before we were recording. And she said, um, so for example, in my neighborhood, you can just see the racism. And what she was referring to is that in her neighborhood, which is largely a somewhat depressed neighborhood, there is an elite school that you have to take a serious test to get into. And so in that off neighborhood, you see white and South Asian and Asian kids streaming into the doors in a neighborhood that otherwise is full of black and Latino kids. Now, she looks at that and she says, you can just see the racism. How come none of the kids from the neighborhood are going to that school? Who are all these kids from other neighborhoods going there instead? I remember her saying that. And I remember thinking, "Okay, this is the problem. It was a little earlier in my development. It's probably like, oh, eight. I thought a person like her sees something like that and is applying a rather stringent standard. And I was wrapping my head around it, and I was really thinking, is she right? If you see something like that, it's racism, because the way it's supposed to be is that that neighborhood is full of the kids who live next door to that building, not these people who come from other neighborhoods. Why aren't there as many black and brown kids there as is represented in the population of New York? If there isn't, then the result, then the reason is something called racism. And I couldn't help thinking, wow, if you look at that and you just knit your brow and say it's bigotry or some outgrowth of it, that there's something about the society not being fair to black and brown people. That's the only explanation for why all those Jewish and Asian kids are walking around there. And you look at that and you think racism and racism to you is a word that hits you in the same place as it would if you were thinking about a white person stepping on a black person's toe. The use of that word there is a modern American peculiarity, but we're stuck with it. Racism. I thought, I don't find, this is what I mean by delicate. I thought at the time, I don't find that very insightful. I thought, I'm not sure that she is inclined to think about this a little harder. And I don't mean that she's dumb. I think that she just had learned to think that way about race and just kind of kept going. Because the reason that the black kids aren't going to that school is so many things. The reason is, the reasons are so many things. It has to do with the history, the racist history of the United States, definitely. But it also has to do with, I hate to say, because of that racist history, certain cultural attitudes that black people often don't have that get you into schools like that. There's a whole notion that high class nerdiness is something other than being black. And it's been authoritatively documented. That's a factor in the culture. It's not a matter of blame. It's just something that happened as the result of the racist past for reasons that we can get into. But there are all sorts of reasons why the people in that neighborhood aren't going to that particular school, especially since the schools that those people go to in the neighborhood are run by black and brown people. It's not as if white people in those schools have been holding them down for generations, treating them as lesser beings. It's complicated. And yet this reporter is just looking there and thinking it's racism. 
Now, that was just her then. And I remember thinking, this is something you get from often educated people, often people in the media. And thankfully, it doesn't go too far beyond that. We're now stuck in a situation where people are running schools who think that way. So their idea is, if you have any kind of imbalance of that kind, then draconian measures are necessary to get rid of that white supremacy. And what worries me in particular is that one way that we want to get rid of it now, apparently, is by excusing black kids from what are called white standards, such as being precise and being on time and being objective and prizing the written word. And I genuinely want to know, I'm done, genuinely want to know, to what extent are these supposed anti-racists actually teaching black kids that they don't have to be on time, so to speak, in all of those ways. Is that something that's just being said to placate a certain kind of black person who enjoys hearing it? Or are black kids really being excused from getting the right answers? I don't have the answer to that question now. I know what these people say in their documents, but I'd be open to finding out that that never infects these curricula. But the gauntlet is upon them because from their writings, I get the feeling that the way we're going to get rid of this racism is to make sure that black kids don't have to try very hard. And I find that disgusting. And if they don't even feel the need to defend it, I find them disgusting. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. I think a couple of things. I don't know the answer to the question of what, why uh, our educational institutions, K-12, through seem to be so susceptible to the influences of this way of thinking, this woke sensibility, this critical race theory-informed uh, uh you know, sort of totalistic embrace of this view of the world. Uh, I would ask what's going on in schools of education and so forth, but I somehow feel that that would be too pat if I were to just say there's a culture of wokeness in the ed schools or something like that. I would wonder about the extent to which uh, people of color who work within these institutions, uh, relatively young, professionally trained teachers, administrators, and so on, have themselves imbibed a way of looking at the world, which they then reflect in their presence within the institution. I was actually invited uh, by a friend uh, who's an educator uh, to speak to a uh, big charter school network that operates in a large American city, which has many, many dozens of uh, principals of the schools that are active in, in associate or vice principals of these schools. So people running charter schools and we had a big webinar and we were talking about these things. And uh, the pushback that I was getting from the presentation that I made was a very, very woke kind of outlook that was coming. And the outspoken uh, people in the audience were all very well presented and articulate, uh, relatively young uh, people of color. These are principals and vice principals of a, of a charter school in a charter school network that is making a big impact on education. But man, their, their way of looking at the world was exactly what you would have predicted about, uh, the worst case of, uh, of, uh, uh, obsession with race and unquestioning embrace of, uh, white supremacy, uh, disregard for the value of black life, of black bodies, and so forth, as the barrier accounting for everything that was going on. And moreover, personal testimony within the institution. I can't get ahead within this institution because of race. If I were white, I would be, you know, treated, you know, just the casual assertion to 
the silent complicity of the majority of the audience who were white. I'm looking at their faces on the screen. I can see who I'm talking to. They, they couldn't have possibly, I thought to myself, really agreed with all of the assertions that were being made. And yet the culture of the institution was such that a few angry, assertive African-American voices as a black woman, I'm here to tell you that sentence, you know, as a, as a person of color, I don't see too many people who look like me at the top of this organization, this kind of rhetoric, this kind of power move. Okay. Um, so that could be, you know, the, it, it, that could be a part of what's going on. We would need a much more granular and detailed analysis of the histories of particular institutions in order to verify it. But I, I speculate that that's some of what's going on. I, I want to, and I won't talk long, un- underscore the, an implication of what you just said, which is, to the extent that people are prepared to impute to African Americans a different set of standards of expectation about what's supposed to, about their acquiring mastery over uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, to the extent that they're prepared to accept that that is a kind of racism too, a soft bigotry of low expectations that is, com- that is very debilitating. It has very substantial deleterious consequences uh, for the kids who are in that charge. And another thing that I want to say, since I'm clearing my throat here, is if you fixate on the anecdote that you told, too many brown and yellow kids walking through the doors of an advanced school that happens to be located in a neighborhood of mostly black kids. If you keep fixating on the, the race of the achievers, I mean, the presumption is that somehow the, they, they're achievement is illegitimate, that somehow it, to the extent that your exclusion is said to be not because of your effectiveness and your performance, but because of your race and because of bias, the unspoken but tacit concomitant claim there is that the success of the people who are walking through the door is somehow illegitimate. Now, where have we heard this before? Too many Jews in the banking industry. You want to talk about a wealth gap? What about the Jewish, non-Jewish wealth gap? It would be humongous if you were actually going to take a look at it. Uh, the success of the Asians is somehow not a reflection of their uh, cultivated acquisition of performative skills and mastery of their discipline, uh, of, of the extent to which they have worked hard at investing in something. But rather, it's supposed to be what? What is it? Is it a... Uh, model minority favoritism? Is, is it that they are the beneficiaries of a certain kind of spillover white privilege? Is that the, is that really the way that you want to talk about five, soon to be six, soon to be eight or 10% of the American population going forward 30 or 40 years? So racism has many, here's my bottom line. Racism has many, many faces. It has many dimensions. Resentment and envy of a group success who happen to be identifiable in terms of race, Jews, Asians, is racism. It's a kind of racism that has led to horrific crimes in human history. And the presumption that somebody who happens to be brown should be ipso facto exempted from the expectation of performance, patted on the head rather than guided to the challenge, is racism. So you want to bandy about the label racism? Well, then let's get serious about who are the actual racists here. Very few of them are wearing pointy hats and holding bonfires. Most of them, many of them are on the left 
self-consciously progressive in this conversation. There's enough racism to go around. And, you know, um, we're supposed to say that for black people, it's different. And so we can't be racist because we are oppressed. And, you know, I can go with people about halfway on that. I know what they mean. But there is some just outright tribalism, dismissive tribalism going on here in the idea that how dare those Asians. And it spills over into notions that the Asians are somehow overly self-regarding, that they think they're so great in taking over these institutions. They, they think of themselves as having a privilege as former New York City Schools Chancellor Richard Carranza put it. You know, he said, and it was, he said it orally in passing, but I think it therefore represented his true belief. He implied that Asian people feel like it's their privilege to occupy these schools, as if they're somehow taking up too much space, as if they aren't just doing what you need to do to pass the goddamn test, as if that there's something wrong with that, as if that's not authentic for people who aren't white. I think that's, that's a part of it. So yeah, this is a, this is a crabbed kind of, um, dialogue. But yeah, you're right. It has taken over the educational establishment. I remember um, having a very unpleasant encounter with a student, a Latina for the record, and this was long enough ago that I'll recount it. It's a good six years ago. And um, we had a little bump in a seminar where I was saying that the SAT is not completely worthless in terms of predicting school performance. It's by no means perfect, but I said it's not worthless. And it's rare that I would have ever said that in a class, but we got onto the subject and I wasn't pushing it and it wasn't a class about race issues, but we were talking about that. It was a class about language. And we were talking about the the vocabulary that you used to have to know on those tests. And I just said that and it got a little ugly. Yes, it was one of the very rare times that a student got a little bit insubordinate with me because she felt so strongly about it. And there were tears in her eyes and she was using a word whose meaning I didn't completely understand. Even then, she was a junior teacher of some kind. She was passionately training to be a teacher. And she was saying, well, what I want to teach my students is empathy. You know, not these old $10 words, but I want to teach them empathy. And that was the word that elicited the tears. And from listening further, I know now. What she meant by empathy, it's, it's a euphemism used in those circles. It is teaching people about oppression. It's teaching people about white supremacy. It's teaching people that the paramount goal of education is teaching children to battle power differentials. And it's, it's rather artful to call that empathy. But that's what she meant. And she's just one of many. And she had been, you know, she's part of this establishment. I imagine at this point, she's probably part of it. I, she was a very nice, very smart person, won some awards, but I am quite sure that at this point, she is in these Zoom sessions espousing exactly the kind of things that you were talking about and quite convinced that it is truth incarnate. And that's where it is because she was normal. And I know that this sort of thing is taught rather furiously at Teachers College, which is part of Columbia, where I work, by people who genuinely think that this sort of thing is is truth. And that's why, in a previous edition with you, I was saying that I wonder if we might not just accept that educational institutions are gone, because there isn't much that you can do about that tilt in education schools that starts in the late 60s and has been given major sanction by this racial reckoning since last summer. These are people who simply cannot be reached. What worries me is that they're going to affect 
our children. I don't know how many grandparents I hear from who are chilled that their grandkids are jumping on them for saying the word nigger in reference to it. You know, they'll just talk about the word, often criticizing it, because they grew up in pre, you know, year 2000 America. And now the kids are saying, how dare you utter that word? Is that one of your... No difference. Your nine nasty words, John. Hmm? I said, is that, is the N-word one of your nine nasty words? It is, and there's a delicate balance because nine nasty words is the happy me. And so my N-word chapter in nine nasty words is not editorial me, and I don't get into how I feel about the increasingly taboo nature of the word I just describe it. You have to read me elsewhere to see how I feel that things have kind of gone too far. But yeah, it's become a taboo word. It's no longer just a slur. We treat that word the way a small group of indigenous people would treat the name of somebody who died 50 years ago, whose name you therefore don't say, nor do you say any word that sounds like it. We are doing precisely that thing with the N word. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a new inculcation and I am still watching to see how significant it is. People ask, where are we a year later? Now, and I'm telling people it's too soon. It's too soon to know how deeply all of this is going to set in. Because one thing that I think we have a year later than George Floyd, excuse me. Yeah, because that's where everything turns upside down. Something that I would be interested to see, and I can't know. We tend to forget how much of all of this has happened over Zoom. You know, we think about people sitting in a room and raising their hand and making speeches, but nobody's been doing that since last summer. All of this happens when all of a sudden everything is happening over Zoom and it's about mute yourself, unmute yourself and people having side discussions in the chat. That's not the way these things would be in a room. And I'm beginning to suspect that a lot of this barbarity is happening because you can get more nonsense by in a Zoom session than maybe you could in a room full of people breathing and smelling each other and not able to have a chat on the side that everybody can see, but just having to do something more like what Quakers call consensus. Once people actually start taking the masks off and being in rooms together, I wonder if that will help a pendulum shift here because maybe part of the reason everything went crazy last summer, it wasn't George Floyd particularly. As horrible as his death was, we've seen things like that. It couldn't have been only that, but that's when everything turns upside down. It was partly the pandemic in that, and I don't mean to minimize what happened to him or to say that a great many people don't have very genuine feelings, but you wanted to get outside. We had all been stuck for two months inside. Those protests were a great way to have an excuse to go out and be with other people. And I completely sympathize with all of that. I'm sure that was part of it. But also then after that, all of a sudden, all these people are getting fired for nothing. All of a sudden, this Crazy Ed School rhetoric is everywhere. All of a sudden, Robin D'Angelo's book, which wasn't any big, big deal until then, is being treated as, you know, like something from St. Peter. All of that happened very quickly, like to be the junior historian. It was June. It was June 2020 that suddenly it was, what the fuck is this? That's where everything changed. And I get the feeling part of it was because they were doing what we're doing right now. I think a lot of it was because of what Zoom is like. I'd like to see if that was the case. That's such an interesting hypothesis. This is a sociolinguistic or some other kind of uh, research project here that you're you're talking about. Somebody should be thinking about how to design the right kind of experiment to to test the yeah. hypothesis. Do you know Irving Goffman, uh, the great uh, late great sociologist? Uh, mm-hmm. A presentation of self in everyday life is the book that I'm thinking of because this idea that the dynamic interaction between persons will be affected by subtle 
um, uh, in subtle aspects of the interaction, such as are possible with face-to-face confrontation, presentation, and so on, where you're worried about managing the definition of the situation and the perception that you're giving off with the other, and where the cues are not only verbal, but they are, you know, facial expression, body language, pauses between re- responses and things of this kind. And they are they are very particular to the medium. So if I'm in face-to-face meeting with someone, it's a very different thing, presumably, than if I'm in a video uh, conference with somebody or if I'm writing back and forth to them by email or text or something like that. Um, and the idea that that could have large political implications uh, by affecting the evolution of consensus around different narrative interpretations of the events that are taking place. It's, it's a very interesting uh, sociolinguistic hypothesis. So I, I hope that there are young people out there who are eager to write a good, important dissertation or, you know, whatever, who are listening and are stimulated because I'm certainly where, stimulated, but I'm not young. Where the, <laughs> where the question, I'm beginning not to be. The question is, why, why did the racial reckoning happen in June of 2020 with the hypothesis being that George Floyd was nowhere near all of the answer? And maybe he was, but I suspect not. And here we are. Is it May? I think it's, it's May, May 1st. This is May so Day, May it's, 1. It's beginning to be a year later. And I'm looking back on that month and thinking about how much my life changed in terms of what people were asking me about and then certain things that started to happen to and around me. And it was really rather unprecedented. I was trying to have a quiet summer away from the pandemic at a bungalow colony and all of a sudden this. And I'm fascinated because, you know, if you've been covering race, depending on what you call coverage for a long time, you, you know that these things happen gradually and you start to look back and you realize what were the significant turning points. And one of them, as I'm always saying, is social media and its takeover. And that starts technically in 2009, but then a magic year was 2014. All sorts of things that you see. Like when I started, the big, big, big deal in terms of black thinkers was Cornell West. He was, he was the one to beat. That's like, say, in 2000. Then give it about four or five more years. The one to beat was Michael Eric Dyson. He was, I remember somebody saying, I won't say it because I have no problem with, with, with Dyson, but it becomes Dyson. Then in the early teens, it becomes Ta-Nehisi Coates. I've always wondered how Dyson felt about that, that kind of changeover. And you and I start yelling and screaming about him. Now it's Ibram Kendi. And I'm thinking about those four people lately. And I don't know if I'm going to write about it, but all four of those are very interesting cases as people regarded as the king of, of thinking black America. You see these changes. And now I realize that equally signature to things like that is going to be June 2020. What happened? So, yes, people who are younger than me, although I'm still young, start studying studying that because it'll be very interesting sociology, whatever conclusions you come to. And it could be that it was George Floyd. I'd be interested in seeing that demonstrated, but I suspect it won't. And I think it'll be more interesting than that. Yeah. So it's something I've been thinking about. Uh, folks, we do not spend all of our time thinking about Michael Eric Des, Tyson, Cornell West and Ibram X. Kendi. We do not. But John had a comment recently about Ibram X. Kendi's reaction to the suggestion that people ought to comply when they interact with police and that there would be much less uh, oh, violence Jesus. and uh, mayhem if they did. 
And his idea, I'm sorry, I'll let you tell him if you want to, John, uh, is that compliance is just too much to ask of black people because of slavery. Forgive me if I get that wrong. John will clean it up. And uh, that seemed a little bit irresponsible to me. It's an invitation to people to not comply with the police officer when they get pulled over for a traffic stop. That sounds like a formula for disaster for uh, the country and for black people. Uh, bad advice. But who am I? I'm just a side. You know, what do I know? Yeah. What about that, John? <laughs> well, you know, we had that conversation about badass motherfucker, which I didn't mean as any kind of highlight, but I was just trying to say that we're not allowed to say outside of our circles that when the cops stop you, do what they say. Get over the black history. Get over that it isn't fair. Just do what they say, and you will almost certainly walk away unscathed. If you don't do what they say, the bad stuff is going to start happening. And even if it isn't fair, just do what they say. But no, that's not considered wise counsel. And right on time, and I had no idea this was coming, right on time, the next day, the Atlantic has, and I'm not talking against and my interminable, of- the piece is interminable. It goes on forever. It was long. And so, you know, he had been writing it before. But, of course, he, Brom Kendi has to have a piece where what you can see is that he listens to people saying you should just behave. And he bristles. He doesn't like that, you know, because of his black nationalist self. And he, he he's angry about the past. He's angry about the present. And he doesn't like the idea that we're supposed to knuckle under to what the white man wants. And so the article is considerably about all these horrible things that happened in the past, which apparently we're supposed to think about now. Because, you know, this is CRT, the idea that to be a black person is to be part of a general narrative. And that narrative apparently is also timeless, that what happened 150 years ago or even what happened 50 years ago, it's Faulknerian, I guess, if you're going to give it a sophisticated sheen. We don't have a, a present past and a future. We just have this kind of Pruchurst. It's just we're, we're all time. And so things that happened 100 years ago are still relevant now in terms of whether or not a young black boy should do as he's told when armed white men are asking him to do things. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't know about the beauty of his writing, et cetera. I'll leave other people to judge that. But I found it hard to find wise counsel in what he was saying. I frankly found what he was saying to not be very thoroughly reasoned. I didn't find that to be a very compelling piece. And yet I imagine that many people felt quite differently about that contribution from one of our leading public intellectuals. Okay. Um, we should probably go on to the Q&A, but I have one more question, and this is not unrelated to the Q&A. Did you see Laura Bazelon's contribution to Barry Weiss's symposium, mm-hmm. What Do We Mean by, quote, Systemic Racism? So you and I both uh, made contributions, which we will not reprise. Anyone wants to see them can go to uh, Barry Weiss's Substack. But Laura's uh, piece uh, was the one contribution to that symposium which very strenuously defended use of the concept of structural racism in reference to, she's a lawyer, she teaches at the University of San Francisco or the University of California, San Francisco. I'm sorry if I, I think it's the University of San Francisco Law School. She's a law professor and she see, she uh, assists clients and she has a client in New Orleans who was railroaded into a very long prison sentence under circumstances that seemed to be like it didn't deserve a really, really super long prison sentence, uh, who was uh, ended up in that situation because a provision in the law that allows for 
a higher and more severe charging decision by the uh, district attorney was invoked in her client's case when arguably it perhaps ought not to have been invoked in her client's case. The consequence, consequences was her client, client was sentenced to, in effect, a lifetime in prison. I mean, it wasn't a life sentence. It was a, I don't remember the number of years. It was very long for a crime that you have to wonder, scratching your head. It was a life how, destroyed. Yeah. How could that be? Okay, how could that be? And moreover, there was exculpatory evidence on her client's behalf that prosecutors were not somehow taking cognizance of and courts were not somehow uh, reviewing, et cetera. So this is a terrible, tragic case as described there. And uh, a question has arisen uh, for us um, about uh, whether or not that's not a dispositive uh, illustration of the phenomenon of systemic racism, which you and I have shown ourselves to be so skeptical about. And I'm just wondering how you how you might respond to that. Real easy. It's almost what I'm beginning to call the Tony Timpa principle in that Tony Timpa was a white person who was unjustifiably killed in a very similar way to George Floyd. And th- there's an agnosticism here. I read that, that Bazelon piece. And yeah, just to think of how that sort of thing must feel. It's like the, um, the Hitchcock movie that isn't as watched as it should be. I think partly because it was late and in black and white, the wrong man. And it was actually filmed in my neighborhood where Henry Fonda gets ensnared into this web. He's accused of something he didn't do and there's nothing he can do and he can't get home and he can't communicate with his wife. That happens to these people and their lives are destroyed. All I want to know is, is what happened to that person something that happens only to black people? Or to put it more precisely, how many white people have that story? Probably impecunious white people, usually in the South who are involved with this or that thing or not involved with this or that thing. Is that something that happens so disproportionately to black people that we can identify it as systemic racism? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I say, yeah, I don't deny that systemic racism exists or is a valid concept at all, but I just don't like the way it's applied willy nilly to any discrepancy between white and black. So I read the Bazelon piece and I just thought I need this to be longer because she's just assuming that this is, this is racism because she's talking about a black man. And I was thinking it, it, metaphorically, what about Tony Tempa? What about Billy Ray something? Are there so few white versions of this that it's not even worth talking about? What are the numbers? Without the numbers, I didn't find that to be a valid argument, but that doesn't mean that I could not be presented with them. Okay. I, I think that's a to be determined. Uh, we don't know enough yet to make a fast judgment. Uh, one thing's for sure, there are injustices in the world. They don't have to be systemically racist injustices. Those injustices befall people. Sometimes those people are black. Sometimes those people are white. The burden, and I agree with this, and it's consonant with my own comment in that symposium, the burden is on the person who brings the charge of systemic racism to be more explicit about exactly what the causal dynamics and their racial dimension are. Usually there's a shadowy and unspecified kind of presumption that there's racist motive behind the law that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't been black. That's a really hard one to pin down because, you know, you don't live in the alternative universe where... If you're in the city of New Orleans, I, I will bet you 92% of the, you know, uh, violent crime cases involve black perpetrators. It's the city of New Orleans, after all. So that bar and, and that prosecutorial office may not have as many white cases to, to put alongside to see whether or not there's a difference. The invocation of systemic racism to some degree draws on our intuitions about the nature of race in the society and to the extent that those are 
skeptical of the blanket supposition of racism everywhere, we are going to require more evidence before we can affirm that. Yeah. Uh, I paraphrase you correct. Okay. So we're going to shift over to the Q and a now, or okay. we're already kind of in the Q and a, uh, Kevin Weiss, uh, asked, what are your thoughts on Camille Foster's racial abolitionism? Uh, it does not seem that you guys are on board. Can you steal man racial abolitionism and then lay out your case against it? Uh, I have become increasingly convinced by Camille's case. This is Kevin Weiss and James Velitis ask us related question. What prevents you from joining Camille Foster in completely rejecting race? Just to clarify what is meant by racial abolitionism is that Camille Foster, a quote, black man, close quote, in terms of what you think when you saw him refuses to call himself a black man or to think of himself as, quote unquote, a black man and uh, abjures the very idea that we are going to see each other in these racial terms. He's for abolishing the categories of race altogether. What do we think about that? It's it makes me feel very small. And I've talked to Camille about this formally. He's right. However, you have to choose what hill you're going to die on. And if I were going to decide to let go of these antediluvian categorizations, I would be very smart, but it would so offend so many people that I couldn't make my voice heard about anything else. And I only have the world that I live in to deal with. And I would like to be heard. And so, you know, I learned early on that Although to me, the existence of racism itself is so obvious that I don't want to waste time talking about it. I want to talk about how you can get past it. I learned that most of an audience about race issues, including whites, needs to hear that you know what racism is. And a corollary of that is that they won't hear me if I say I'm probably 50% white and these are the categories that were imposed upon us by segregationists and by Jefferson Davis and by Thomas Jefferson, and we must get past it and look at our light-skinned children. I fully get it, but no, I'm also pragmatic. You have to choose your battles. When I'm um, dealing with many European people, I find it interesting. Because of my academic work, most of my academic life takes place in Europe or with Europeans. And they see me as more American than as black. And I always find that interesting. It's like, hmm, America could be like that, you know, if you kind of fiddle with the dials and switches, but it isn't. But, you know, here I am in Germany. And, yes, people know that I am I am black. But to to them, more specifically, in terms of everything about me, what's different is that I'm from the United States. But, you know, even when I say that, there's a certain kind of black person here who's howling. Just he doesn't know what they really think of him. He's a nigger there, too. They're wrong, but those are the sorts of feelings that we're dealing with. And so when I'm here, which is, you know, 99% of the time, I can't be that advanced. And I completely respect Camille in doing what he's doing. But if I walk around doing kind of the Ward Connerly and saying, well, technically, I'm just me. I'm not black. I lose so many people that it wouldn't be worth my saying much of anything at all. And no, that's not about money and speaking fees and things like that. It's just that I wouldn't be heard. And I would like to be heard because I think somebody needs to say the sorts of things that I say. So Camille is too smart for me and too brave. But then again, I would say, and I assume Camille, you may be watching me say this. 
you may be willing to not be heard by more people than I am. I just, I can't die on that hill. That is my answer to that question. Okay. Let me respond. Um, I'm, I'm going to respond in a similar spirit. It's not so much a pragmatic judgment though, that I would uh, issue here. Uh, I think we need to understand conceptually what we're dealing with when we're talking about race. Uh, I agree with Camille's instinct, which is, come on, we're deep down just human beings here. The genetic difference between African descended and European descended populations is very, very, very small. Why should I understand myself in the 21st century in terms of historical narrative that emphasizes only a part of my racial ancestry since African-Americans are descended from European as well as from uh, uh, from African uh, uh, ancestors? Uh, don't I just contribute to the entire uh, irrational fixation on race by embracing the category for my own self-description or allowing others to interact with me in that way? I mean, I, I see... I see the instinct. It's it's a little bit like the argument that I associate with Barbara Fields and Karen Fields in their nice book called Racecraft, where they say there's no such thing as witches, right? I mean, uh, we know that that's a fantasy. Uh, then we don't burn people at the stake for being witches. There are no witches. I mean, we, we understand that. Uh, we, we understand that that's a delusion. Uh, well, isn't race the same thing? There are no races in any deep biological sense, and yet we we reify these categories. So I, I think that's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough when talking about race, because I, I want to think in the first instance about race as uh, a language of social signification. But there are marks on people's bodies. The marks are of no intrinsic significance, but within a society over some period of time, people will come to imbue them with significance. Now that becomes a reality in and of itself and a sole actor declaring that they will no longer speak the English language with the vocabulary to which we have become accustomed, but will invent their Esperanto because they want to be free of the overhang of the historical uh, uh, practices. No one will understand what they're saying. Uh, you, you will miss a reality to the extent that you unilaterally opt out of a ubiquitous, uh, nearly universal social convention. You can't undo the convention simply by a unilateral act. Now, if it's a question about how an individual wants to live, uh, that's one thing. I choose not to think of myself as a black person. Uh, you gave the example of if you interact with colleagues in Europe, they see you primarily as an American, as not as a black uh, but there is also a question of how you see yourself. Uh, the people who object to you saying that, saying that, well, they still see you as a nigger are, I think, uh, pointing the arrow in the wrong direction. Those people still see themselves as quote unquote niggers. That is, they're still thinking about themselves as being black in a white world. That doesn't have to be the way that the other person is thinking about it. But if you think about yourself in that way and it gets reflected in your behavior, that becomes relevant to other people. Now, you know, I mean, the black person with the chip on their shoulder becomes a type. It becomes a black person who can't forget that they're black. But that means that other people can't forget that the person is black either. So anyway, unilateral opting out of universal social conventions is a quixotic move. A person may take for their personal satisfaction 
But as a politics, as a strategy, uh, I don't see it going very far. But I have another concern about uh, eschewing uh, racial identity, and this derives from my um, respect for the tradition of solidaristic self-help and uplift within Black private spaces, family, historically Black colleges, fraternity and sorority institutions, churches, things of this kind. These are, quote unquote, Black spaces, not exclusively showed, not in terms of any statutory requirement, but as a historical inheritance. People's fealty and connection to one another based upon their racial identity is a real thing. It's what allowed the civil rights movement to happen. It, it happened as an outgrowth, as Alden Morris explains, I think, quite brilliantly in his Origins of the Civil Rights Movement uh, treatise, uh, out of uh, communalistic, uh, racially defined networks of affiliation. Uh, when I invoke my ancestors as a source of inspiration to my, our ancestors, as a source of inspiration to my children, and I invoke my Black ancestors in order to inspire my children to make the most of their enormous opportunities uh, on behalf of a project that began long before they or even I was born, I'm doing something that's not strange to human culture. I'm doing something that's very natural to human culture. And the racial aspect of that for African-Americans is a real thing. What will it be in 100 years? What will it be in 200 years? That's a different question. Maybe much less thick with respect to raciality in 100 or 200 years. Maybe African-Americans come to look much more like an ethnic group, like Irish-Americans or Italian-Americans, who do have some ethnic specificity to their self-understanding, but there's a lot of intermarriage, and it's worn relatively more lightly, both by the insiders to the group and by those outside the group. I learned that he's Irish. It doesn't exactly change my view of him in any profound way, etc. So I, I, I'm objecting here to Camille's uh, noble, but I think to some degree quixotic, God bless him, uh, uh, stance as at, at two levels. One is we can't undo the convention simply by declaring it's all over. The convention persists with real consequences. We live in a quote-unquote raced society where racial identity, racial perception, and so forth is a reality that colors uh, many aspects of our social interaction, and that's simply a fait accompli. It's a given. It's, it's a fact about uh, the world. But the other thing is that from an agency point of view, there, there is some value in, in blackness, or there can be some value in a acknowledgement and an embrace of one's blackness. And the question becomes, how heavily do I wear it? I would argue that I shouldn't allow it to supersede other obligations. For example, my obligations as a citizen of the country of which I am a citizen, or my obligations as a human being to be uh, in interaction with other human beings, respectful of their, of their uh, uh, infinite dignity and all of that kind of flowery language. But, um, that's how I'd respond.